This is the Abraham's Wallet podcast. Abraham's Wallet spans the gap between the austerity of obedience to God and the prosperity rising from faithfulness. Run your home and your dough like a biblical boss. This week's episode is brought to you by Outpost Advisors. You know, there are a lot of places where you can go and talk with someone about your money. Even so, it can be hard to know whether they're trying to sell you financial products or if they're acting as a fiduciary on your behalf, or really if they even understand your vision for building a household in the vein of Abraham himself. Outpost Advisors is different in that regard. They are financial life planners, which means that when you become a client of Outpost, you'll be guided through a unique process to unearth your purpose as a family, define a vision, and then faithfully deploy your resources in service of that vision. Outpost works with all sorts of households, from those just getting started to folks who are stewarding grandchildren and navigating retirement. So if you're looking for help as you build your own Abrahamic outpost, head over to outpostadvisors.net and set up a free call today to learn about how Outpost Advisors can help your family. In the mid-1800s, the U.S. of A. started planting forts as they pushed west. These forts, also called frontier outposts, served as tiny exports of the comfy home culture of Virginia and Massachusetts, etc. These outposts felt like America, but they existed out on the frontier in a place that wasn't yet America. Supplies were occasional and much needed. These forts were occupied by hardy people who believed in the promise of a future very different from their present reality. They were ready to defend that stake with their lives because it represented an idea they were committed to with everything in them and surrounded by an unforgiving and often hostile climate that was at best uneasy with their presence. That's exactly what you're called to build, bucko. Think about it. Your God-oriented home is, like Abraham himself, looking forward to a city not made by human hands whose designer and builder is God. You're surrounded by people who don't see it that way, and your outpost will have to represent a culture that doesn't much exist in your town. You're an ambassador for a coming king. Your job is to produce a few people who understand this kingdom's foreign culture as their own, and then export it to as many people as are willing to receive it. Think of your home's culture as an ongoing science experiment inside that outpost construct. You're constantly learning more about how your family works best, how to build into your family, and what your family was designed to output for others. And outsiders to your home, like the good people at Abraham's Wallet who poke their noses in with what they hope is helpful advice, can help ask the right questions, but they really can't give you your specific answers. Those have to come from you alone. And you're constantly tinkering, tinkering, tinkering with the formula. That's one of the reasons that we like summits so much at Abraham's Wallet. They afford you the opportunity to step away and consider what's happening and why. If the culture of your home is accidental instead of carefully curated, the result can't help but be random as well. It's a tall order, isn't it? Representing the king while still figuring out what you've got in your fort. It is hard. 
We need all the help we can get. The good news is that the culture you're going for is outlined explicitly in a real good book called the Bible, and it's available all over the place. My favorite version at the moment is called the One New Man Bible, for whatever that's worth. I grant you that your home isn't supposed to work exactly like mine. There will be some similarities. We'll have evening meals together. There'll be family prayers. You'll observe Sabbaths. You'll love the Dallas Mavericks the way we do in my home. But our different callings and giftings and personality mixes will inevitably translate into diversity between our homes. But for every Abrahamic leader, our homes will all, even in their diversity, have a unique tenor to them that reeks of the once and future king and of his coming kingdom. And to this fact that, again, Jesus-centric households are as foreign to modern America as nerves are to icy, steely-eyed Luka Doncic, who's a star with the Mavericks, and you, my family leader, really are living on a frontier, and I want you to see it that way. I want you to see your home as an outpost in a foreign and sometimes opposing landscape that it doesn't belong in. You could look around your neighborhood, look out your front door and go, one of these things is not like the others. Our home is going to have a culture that stands apart from and occasionally opposes the culture around us. The metaphor we started with holds. Just as the frontier forts that were littered across the American West represented an outpost of a culture that was being incarnated into what was mostly untamed wilderness, your home must be in your world. Three points. One, they must be self-sustaining. Inasmuch as you can feed and cultivate spiritual health inside your own home, this includes securing an encouraging and challenging community around you, and it's made possible by prayer and the Bible's radical portability. Number two, the culture of your home must be self-defending in that there are active restrictions on the world's influence and threat against your pure walk with God. Does that make sense? Active restrictions on the world's influence coming into your home. Even language differences should exist between you and the culture in which your family is embedded. For instance, oh my God is a common, totally common thing that most of our kids hear in elementary school every day. It's the exclamation point of our culture. We will not say that phrase. We will not say, oh my God, in our homes. We will not take the Lord's name in vain. His name is holy. And we even correct neighborhood kids that come into our home and say that and say, we don't use God's name like that in our home. And I'm not mad at you. I'm just telling you, this is the way our home works. Because when you walk cross the threshold into our property, you walk into a foreign culture for most kids. The mere fact that something is on broadcast airwaves doesn't mean it's fit for your family's consumption. I'll, I'll Let me just say about this, there's so much that labels itself as kid-friendly and family-friendly entertainment, which should be nowhere near a thousand miles of, of your living room, shouldn't be anywhere near your room, in, in, near your home, because you're protecting a biblical culture. And things which are seen as innocuous um, to outsiders, to you, can feel like propaganda of the world. And so you have to be pretty vigilant, I have to say, as a father, you have to be pretty vigilant about what's in your children's hands, 
and what's going into their eyeballs, in their hands, I mean books that they're reading, things that they're consuming. Um, not to mention, when I say active restrictions, I, I also am talking about um, the amount of digital content that goes into your kids' hands. There should be very tightly defined restrictions of electronic media that your children are exposed to. It's not like, well, the iPad and the computer are just sitting out, and if anybody wants to use them, there they are. That should not be that way in your home. Because, they're, again, we're trying to create a culture. This is, this is what I mean by an outpost. Your, your movie choices aren't dictated by an MPAA rating, but by comparing its themes and values to that of Yeshua's kingdom culture. The proper use of a Saturday, even, will be dictated by an unseen governor, not by cultural norms. We could go on and on about that. I mean, I'm already getting into it with my little girls about what modesty means, because um, I'll just give you an example. My little children as four or five, well, I could go back to three, three, four or five, six-year-olds, they're not going to be wearing bikinis. Why is that? Because there's something salacious about seeing a three-year-old's belly? No, because we're creating norms in our household. And we talk about modesty um, at an age with our girls when they don't really need to be modest. But we talk about modesty with them. Why? Because we're protecting a culture. And I'm protecting that culture in their hearts and minds. So that when they start turning 13, 14, 16, 17, we've already established we don't do bikinis in this household. We're a modest household. So that's one example um, of when I say self-defending, I'm talking about the active restrictions. I think of myself with a sword and a shield standing at my front door saying, how dare you world try to get into my household? Because you can't, because I've, I've, I'm determining these things and I'm defending my home from the influence of the world. Well, that was a long point. And last point is number three, they must be self-policing in that accountability for character, belief, and behavior isn't foisted upon you by outside forces. It's secured by parental leadership inside the home. Now that obviously follows the second point, which is we're not going to let the world tell us what our values are and what we should be doing. But um, we should be self-policing. So we know when there's a cultural tripwire that's happening inside our home. So, for instance, there's nothing in the culture at all that would ever tell me that my children aren't allowed to disobey me several times in a row until I start losing my cool and then they should obey. That would be, I guess, the cultural norm or else I would, you know, the culture says to like remove the temptation from the child or or distract the child, you know. Um, what do they say to, to reorient their attention or whatever? We don't do that in my home. There's something inside my home, which is we obey the first time. So when dad or mom speaks, we expect obedience the first time. Why is that? Because I'm training my children that when the Lord speaks to them, they obey him the first time. So we have to be self-policing that we're looking for these things. I mean, and this doesn't just go for the kids. This goes for me and my wife. We have rules ourselves about electronics in our bedroom and... 
uh, you know, phones and stuff. And we, we will sometimes kind of like uh, poke one another and go, um, it's after dinner and I can't help but notice, looks like you're on your email there in, uh, in our bedroom. That's not allowed. So we're self-policing. All right, those three points again, self-sustaining, self-defending, and self-policing. Self-sustaining just means you're bringing the goods into your home. I can sustain my family with spiritual nourishment, and I should. I should be leading prayer and worship and Bible study in my home. Self-defending, I can, I can oppose the world. And self-policing, we can deal with what's happening inside. Again, think of that outpost picture. It all had to happen inside the, the walls of that fort. Okay, if this is true, that each family is to have a different flavor to it based on the people who comprise it, then this conviction of standing on our own two feet is crucial. Said another way, if your home can't possibly be a carbon copy of what any other home is, then by golly, you'll need to, the grit to plant your own flag and declare this is where we stand as a family. We might be similar to other families in some ways, but we're our own thing, and we won't be moved from our bedrock convictions. And in good conscience, we're moving somewhere by God's and Dad's leadership. And so be it. And we deal with whatever comes from that. This idea that each family stands alone isn't just something that I thought up. And now I'm going to have, I'm going to make a couple of points here. One, the family unit is the building block of society. That is to say, and we used to believe this, <laughs> the, all of American culture used to believe this. It's not, it's no longer believed because we think that anything is a family and whoever you like and whoever you're, um, I don't know, whoever you feel affiliation with is your family and the basis of society is whatever you want it to be. But the truth is that the family unit is the building block of society, and if it falls, the whole society falls. That is to say, it's the smallest possible unit of a society that still retains its unique properties. Those properties would include the three things listed above, and other factors like language, habits of eating, rest, and exercise, work, relationships, reproduction, etc., etc. It's a lot of weight to put on a group, and nothing short of a family can handle that burden. Sociologists demonstrate this to us when families disintegrate in any way, from divorce to any family member dying, even so much as a family member suffering a life-changing injury, the family often fails. The question of validity for a building block is, were all of society made up of only this model, would the society stand? And the answer with regards to a biblical family is a resounding yes. Let me just put a, put a test on that one. If all of society were a single group of people that, I'm sorry, a group of singles that only got together to watch TV shows, could that society sustain itself? No. For one, there'd be no reproduction. Two, no work would get done. There'd be no self-policing as far as character goes, and the society would 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 crumble. Um, could society stand if all of society were made up only of homosexual couples? No, the answer is no, because there'd be no reproduction. So again, the only thing that that fits that model is the biblical family. Not only would everyone in a godly family stand as a strong 
shore model for society, it would be it would exponentially increase the strength of any nation on earth if that happened. I mean, just imagine everybody in America in a strong, godly home with a father who leads and a mother who supports. Incredible strength would be gained. Show me any alternate that could stand up under that weight, and I'll listen. No bridge club could make it, no fire department, no Bible study, or any other grouping of people. Just the family as God defines it. Number two, the family unit also happens to be the building block of the church. You may have picked up over time that the local congregation was the smallest viable unit of the called out ones. Like the local congregation, that's the smallest grouping possible of believers, but I say nay. That's not true. That's not true. That that's the smallest group of believers. It's the family. This is true biblically. Number one, I'll make two points to back this up. This is true biblically. Back in the Old Testament days, Moses or whoever would call together heads of families to make governmental decisions, not gang leaders or warlords, not whoever's strongest, the leaders of families. Israel was grouped and managed by families. In New Testament days, churches were identified not by gifted individuals who led them or whoever's the most gifted, and so they're our leaders. Um, That's not how things were chosen. It was by hosting families who ran their households and facilitated church meetings through them. You won't find talk of pastors or any other spiritual communities in the scriptures outside of those arising directly from homes. Do you know why? Because they didn't exist. Even heroes like Jesus and Paul, single men, operated in and through other families, recognizing their authority in God's system. Strong spiritual communities were simply combinations of households that banded together for encouragement, accountability, and the give and take of spiritual gifts. Ergo, the church at Rome simply meant the network of families that followed Jesus there. There was no organization, no headquarters, no central building that received money to keep the heat running and perpetuate itself. And by the way, I'm not saying there's no value to the third-party church organizations, but I am saying that its existence has led to families missing out on their key role in their own spiritual health and that of their wider communities, because we often punt our spiritual growth to the local church house and go, I'm sure the church house will take care of my kids' spiritual growth. They'll take care of my my and my wife's um, spiritual nourishment, etc. And they just shrug their shoulders and go, I hope they do a good job. And the local church is supposed to support families. It's not supposed to supplant families as far as having a um, spiritual gravity to the home. Number two, this is also true practically. I know of several examples of a single family hanging on to spiritual life and then expanding into nation-changing networks of many, many families. Two such high-profile examples would be when Francis and Edith Schaefer took their family to Switzerland and they lived as a self-sustaining church for years and years, just their home, until their family start, until their children started bringing friends home from university and inviting them into the rhythms of their family and disciples started being made. An entire missionary movement launched from that home. Another great example is the Bar Davids in, uh, in Israel. They immigrated from pre-Soviet Bulgaria to their ancestral home of Israel in the 1920s. 
When Israel regained its sovereign nation status in 1948, the Bar Davids represented 11 of the 14 people in the nation who believed in Jesus as the Jewish Messiah. They endured as a church in a house, and they proliferated. They now, they now operate an entire messianic kibbutz called Yad Hashmanah in Israel, which houses about 50 families and has its own school, has its own businesses, etc. And there are now over 15,000 Jewish followers of Yeshua in Israel. That's cool, right? <laughs> Just shows you within a family, if that outpost of that family can stay strong, again, self-sustaining, um, they can be self-defending, um, they can make it. <laughs> they can make it. You can probably understand why I'm always saddened when I see a Christian family who has abandoned their children's values to a school and just let the school tell them whatever they want. Or a father abdicates his place as the spiritual leader of the home to a pastor or counselor. Similarly, I'm emboldened and challenged every time I come across a self-composed family that knows who they are, takes an identity out into the world instead of searching for one in the world, and makes their own decisions about spiritual and moral development. The factory production model of education and religion. I've asked this question before, but seriously, how many people even have a personal relationship with the, quote, pastor of their church, let alone being personally counseled and led by him? That factory production model of education and religion has shaped us into thinking that our homes are a place for receiving and consumption instead of a place for industry, diligence, creation, and management. I've heard that's not a biblical idea. I guess what I'm saying in all of this, if you are the husband and father of a family, listen to me talking, I guess what I'm saying is you're the man. God doesn't come looking to your local pastor when he wonders why his people don't fast or worship or give or know the scriptures. And he doesn't come to your senior executive administrator when he has a super cool assignment to hand out or prophetic revelation to bestow. He comes to the city as he, the Lord, sees it. And the Lord sees the city as families, networked together by love and mutual submission. When God says, if my people who are called by my name, he wasn't thinking of Baptists or Catholics or any other group besides the family unit. Those are my people, says the Lord. So I say hooray to every parent who's willing to plant their flag on their block and say, we will endeavor to follow the Lord. We will train our children in the fear of him. We will put a guard on our mouths and a governor on our flesh and a banner over our home because we live for an unseen kingdom which is gaining ground all over the world and which will someday cover the earth with his good glory. The lost world is the frontier and we're going exploring. So I say every home and outpost. 